0: Welcome to the very first episode of Conversations with Coleman. I'm your host, Coleman Hughes. The idea for this podcast is pretty simple. I talk to people who I find interesting. I have five or six really great guests already lined up who I won't spoil now. But in the long run, this podcast is an experiment. And as a result, I need your feedback. If you like the guests I'm getting, let me know. If there's someone you think I should talk to who I might not otherwise think to talk to, let me know. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe to it on YouTube. You can follow my Facebook page so you're alerted when a new episode comes out. And you can follow me on Twitter, where I will post the link to each new episode. Each episode is going to have both audio and video, so you can watch it on YouTube or you can listen to the audio version on whichever podcast listening app is your favorite. So a few notes before I introduce my very first guest, who probably doesn't need much introduction. The audio on Sam's end is not ideal. We tried to have him record it, but we ended up losing that file. It's neither horrible nor amazing, and I hope the listening experience won't be too bad. All of my subsequent episodes will have... Great audio on both ends of the conversation. This conversation took place on July 12th, shortly after I testified before Congress on the topic of reparations for slavery and Jim Crow. We begin by talking about the ethical, practical, and political implications of paying reparations for slavery and Jim Crow. We talk about diversity and what's reasonable to expect in terms of equal representation between different races and genders in a multi-ethnic society like our own. We talk about the prospect of living in a post-racial or colorblind society. We talk about how to interpret racial disparities in achievement. And Sam gives me some advice on how to deal with the future public shamings that I am probably destined to experience. So without further ado, Sam Harris. My guest today is Sam Harris, neuroscientist, author of The End of Faith, Waking Up, The Moral Landscape, Free Will, Lying, podcaster, extraordinaire and uh, one of
1: my personal heroes. Thank you for being on the show, Sam. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for jumping into this. It's great to uh, You are one of my personal heroes now as well. So, yeah. um, happy to be here. So,
0: I was thinking we would start off by talking about reparations, if that's
1: okay with you. Right this is a a topic that i think is genuinely difficult about which i don't have a settled opinion so I, my my mind is unusually open on this topic
0: yeah my mind is i think more open than you you would expect it to be you know i've i've evolved in my thinking on this issue even in the past 2 3 weeks just having had so much time to think about it having gotten so much feedback Obviously, I think my fans will know that I testified before Congress a few weeks ago against reparations, one of eight testifying. You can see the, the video on YouTube and testifying for reparations for, for Bill H.R. 40 was ta Coates, Danny Glover, and many others. And, and then it was myself and one other person testifying against. And that went pretty viral. I think that went more viral than anything that I've said or, or written Right. And uh, a lot of the backlash was pretty ugly. It was a public shaming of a degree that I haven't really experienced before. And I want to talk about public shaming in, in general later, because you're a veteran of that territory. Yes, but haven't I haven't been shamed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um. I think we should talk about reparations first. And, you know, I think you can go back and, and look at what I said and what I've written about it in Quillette. But I think one mistake I made was... I guess trying to think about reparations with the logical half of my brain more than the emotional half, because I think slavery and Jim Crow, for many people, just feel like an open wound, feels like something as a nation we have not yet gotten closure about. And we can mm-hmm. talk about why that is, but that that just is a fact, I think, at this moment. And the goal that I completely share with people who want reparations is to feel like slavery and Jim Crow, are somewhat closed wounds, that the scar is healing nicely, so to speak. The question is, how do we get there? And you know, I, w- I want your opinion on this. Do you, do you see that as the goal? And
1: if so, do you see reparations as a way to get there? Well, again, with the caveat that I haven't thought a lot about this, uh, I do not have a settled opinion on it. It seems to me that there's a, a fairly straightforward ethical case for it. I mean, there's this obvious injury that you can bound historically in at least to a first approximation, and you can link it up with a fairly obvious debt. I mean, you can, you can make some argument about the the amount of wealth that was created, and you we have the history of wealth inequality that followed. It's not nearly as clean as a more contemporaneous injury, like pain reparations for Holocaust survivors in the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust, say. But it still is fairly easy to pinpoint the the moral problem. I think it's very hard to make a practical case for it. And I, I think it's impossible at the moment to make a, a compelling political case for it. I mean, just to, to take the immediate concern of the, the next presidential election, you know, my, my gut intuition is that Pushing for reparations now among the Democrats is just a guaranteed way to get Trump elected for four more years. I, I, th- I think it's a political non-starter that's not going to prevent certain Democrats from from attempting it. So even if the, at the end of a, a long conversation, I could say I'm for reparations. I'm not for reparations in this election cycle just because mm-hmm. I, I think it will will guarantee Trump. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the uh, a, I think those, those are separable pieces. The ethical case is, is pretty clear. It's just the issue you get into is you, that immediately bleeds into the practical case. I mean, who pays and who gets paid, right? Is, and, and how? Like, what, what what are reparations in this case? And what are we actually correcting for? Are we, are, are we correcting for the ambient level of racism that still exists to the disadvantage of, of African-Americans? Or are we correcting for identifiable theft for people who are the, the descendants of of slaves, you know and I mean, so there are many people who are black who probably inherit certainly inherit whatever consequential racism still exists, but they aren't descended from slaves, right they're immigrants or their you know their parents were immigrants. so how you reconcile all of that i mean that that's very difficult
0: yeah, so I, I like that you separate this into the ethical conversation and the practical conversation. I think most supporters of reparations limit themselves to the ethical. Part of the conversation, clearly because they have a better case there. but there have been some like uh, like the economist Sandy Darity who have pretty persuasively worked out the practical side as well. He has a plan for how to determine who gets it and he sort of worked out many of the kinks in mm-hmm. a way that you know at least make, makes me feel as someone who still opposes most versions of reparations that I I can't win the argument. On the practicalities alone. But then there's a third part, which is political, about which I completely agree with you. I mean, I think there's something crazy about being blindsided by things over and over again. So I was someone who was blindsided by Trump's victory, absolutely blindsided and extremely distraught. And I think we have to learn the lesson to not do things that are going to get us blindsided again in 2020. I think reparations is clearly one of those things, given how unpopular it is. But I want to wind it back to the ethical conversation for a second. Clearly, reparations in general, I think, are owed to the specific victims of a crime or, or mm. something that was not defined legally as a crime at the time, but we look back on with horror. But it's, it's less clear to me that reparations are owed to the grandchildren, for, for example, of, of a Holocaust survivor, even, um, even if that Holocaust survivor weren't weren't paid at the time and should have been. What do you think of that? The, the, I think the median African-American in America is like 33 years old, right? Born in, mm. in, in the 80s, right? Do you do you observe that distinction or do you think because it wasn't paid to my grandfather that in principle I inherit what was not given to him?
1: Well, there, there just is this counterfactual case where had your grandfather had the average level of economic opportunity and, and wealth accrual of, uh, you know, a white person in his generation, well, then there would have been more inheritance. There would have been something passed down, presumably. And if in your case, it wasn't, I mean, you can draw a fairly straight line there. And again, there's the other side of the ledger always here. There are white people, there are, there are black people who are doing great. There are white people who are doing terribly. And it, because the moment you start talking about reparations, there's a demand to focus on what, what, problem are you actually trying to solve in the present, right? You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, if you you know, should middle-class and wealthy African-Americans get reparations when you have, when you can point to millions of people of, you know, in other groups who are doing badly, uh, certainly worse off than they are, and if you simply looked long enough you would find disparities in in bad luck or you know historical contingencies that accounted for why they were doing badly i mean so where there's a there's a uh, an obvious question about where this stops right because it, there's so many groups that have been treated badly again not it, it, the injury is not as salient as slavery and its aftermath but i mean the native americans obviously have a case what reparations are they owed and the history of colonialism will volunteer various cases, right? What look at we can look at all of our misadventures the world over and ask what is owed to what is owed to Africa for the centuries of pillage there. So there is a, a concern about where it stops, but you you sort of have that concern whenever you try to right any wrong, mm-hmm. right? So that's not really a, a knockdown argument against doing this. You know, you can't have the the, the perfect be the enemy of the good here. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a hard case for me because the politics creeps in here too. Because the people who are who are arguing for reparations, I mean, someone like ta Coates, most of them, many of them, cer- certainly Coates, I view as as bad faith actors. They're just not not honest brokers of the ethical principles here, and you get the sense that I mean, just imagine the world. Imagine the day after the fullest payment of reparations that's conceivable right then what happens? Coach certainly seems capable of saying if you think you can buy us off with a check of that size of any size you know you've got another thing coming right yeah. like so the goalpost post will move and then you're left with the question well what was what was any of this for right if this if if, if the wound of slavery can't be healed yeah. with anything as crass as a you know whatever it would be a, a six trillion dollar check right? Well, then, why did we go down this path in the first place
0: yeah there's 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 a lot there, so I, I want to wind it back to you know you, you the counterfactual, if not for slavery Jim Crow, black people would have more wealth. That's a very supportable statement, I think, on average. Uh, it's clear yeah. that slavery, Jim Crow, especially policies like redlining, had a long-term effect on the median black person's wealth even in 2019. Uh, the question is how much of the wealth gap uh, would be closed if history had gone differently, more fairly. I've read a lot of Thomas Sowell and, and, and been very persuaded that disparities, indeed large disparities, are the norm rather than the exception. And often it's the case that the group that's discriminated against has more wealth than the group that discriminated against it. And the the mm. with wealth, the example I always give is that, you know, there's a study from the early 2000s that showed the median Jewish household to have seven times the wealth of of the median conservative Protestant household. And I think many people aren't sensitive to, many people, I think, naively assume that in the counterfactual, everything would be the same. But that aside, I I think it's, it's clearly true that black people would have more wealth than they do now if history had gone differently. The reason that I don't, think of this in terms of the counterfactual so much is because i think it's kind of beside the point so for instance if we're going to start doing counterfactual thinking then we kind of have to do counterfactual thinking across the board and that then you you get led to very repugnant conclusions very quickly for example where would i be if not for slavery quote unquote hypothetically right mm. i would have been born in west africa rather than in New Jersey, right? Does that mean slavery was good for me? No, I mean, I, that, that's just the wrong way to think about it, in, in my view. Right. Because right. it's just, besides being a kind of icky way of reasoning, I, I'm not sure it's a very useful way of reasoning. I well, think presumably, you,
1: w- you wouldn't even exist. I mean, almost nobody could say that everything would be the same, except they would have been born in another country, right? Right.
0: But, um, you know, turning to this point, which is one I I really agree with, and One that John McWhorter made as well is uh, the goalposts are constantly shifting on the way we tell the narrative of what America has done to try to make up for slavery. When we instituted affirmative action, which is still ongoing, giving black people a leg up in college admissions, diversity and inclusion programs in various sectors of the labor market. If you're a minority business owner, there are set aside programs that will allocate government contracts specifically for people like you. All of this is in the spirit of making up for the past, even though it's sometimes, you know, we've, we've sort of had to shift the rationale to diversity, perhaps because people are uncomfortable with making the case for reparations. But even ta has written in The Atlantic that the diversity rationale doesn't make that much sense to him for affirmative action. Really what makes sense is the, the redress for history rationale. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the reason I, uh, you know, I, I've kind of gotten away from the counterfactual way of thinking. And also the reason why I tend to not think anymore in terms of comparisons to other examples of reparations is because I, I guess I'm less concerned with the principles involved and more, more, more concerned with getting to a place where this feels like a closed wound for people. And I, yeah. I think of the analogy of a person who has experienced some terrible trauma, sometimes you know, often in childhood. I know people who experienced a terrible trauma in, in childhood and really reconciled w- with it to the point where they're not thinking about it all the time. They've really gone through what it takes to get past it. And then I know other people who experienced a trauma and as elderly people still talk about it almost every day, interpret their entire lives through through the lens of this trauma that happened to them and clearly have gotten no closure about it whatsoever. And The difference between the first person and the second person, it seems to me, isn't so much about what the world did or did not give them, but much more about the way they reframed their own history. So I think that whatever, you know, reparations means, and people are very quick to say it's not just a paycheck, it's much more. Other people will say it is a paycheck. So there's a way in which reparations is talked about kind of like, uh, I think of the analogy of the briefcase from Pulp Fiction, where you never get to see what's in it, but it's amazing and it's the best thing. Uh, But when whatever that is happens, is paid, I think you're completely right that Coates and others will say, and not completely without reason, how dare you put a dollar value on slavery and Jim Crow? They'll be able to muster a considerable amount of moral outrage, I think, just at the prospect of it. And, And frankly, I think it will be worse because I've heard from a lot of you know conservative fans of mine, uh, you know, often white conservative fans of mine, who actually do like the I- idea of reparations because they want to do it once and then they want to be able to say, damn it, you have been paid. Can you stop complaining about racism now? Can we please move on to another subject? That's what I hear sometimes. And yeah. the combination of that plus the heightened moral outrage at having slavery monetized in this way, I think is, is going to be a, a combination that makes race relations
1: worse rather than better. Right, right. Well, the, the comparison between the two people, real or hypothetical, one of whom seems totally resilient, and, and I mean, even in the extreme case, there, there are people who are clearly made stronger and more functional based on some early trauma, mm-hmm. right? And then there, there are people who, as you say, whose, whose lives are just diminished by it up until their dying day. You can draw that analogy to groups and to, and to perhaps whole cultures. You know, not, not all cultures are telling themselves stories that render them equally resilient or creative in the face of, of various crises, right? Now, this is just a kind of generic statement, which virtually has to be true. I mean, it's practically a tautology. If culture is doing anything to help or harm people in terms of how they function— and we have different cultures that are not running precisely the same software, well, then you're going to see differences in that respect. And I think, you know, we're right to worry that there is a kind of religion of victimhood emerging on the left, which of necessity has taken in more people of color or, or you know, a disproportionate number of people of color. But as you said at the, at the beginning, I believe you said this at the beginning, maybe this is, I mean, this is a point that y- you and I are... Both familiar with that, the most woke people, the people who are most trumpeting this victimology, are are well educated white liberals at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, there are memes now that are enshrining victimhood in a way that seems quite unhelpful. Mm-hmm. You know, and you see people who, you know, just as you don't like to see people who are endlessly, you know, indelibly defined by the moments in their lives where they were victims. You don't want to see whole cultures defining themselves in those terms. So, yeah, I I think the the argument for reparations would be if it held out a promise to actually reset this whole attitude with respect to the burden of the past. Either we are, are effectively canceling the burden of the past or we're not. And if it's hopeless to even try, well, then let's not open the other wounds that would be opened or the create wounds that would be created by trying against the the will of surely some considerable number of of people. Yeah,
0: it it strikes me there's an analogy to apologies here, which is something I've heard you talk about more and more recently. What is an apology? If I say something to my girlfriend that was that really hurts her, right? And I apologize right. for it, if it's sincere, it gets accepted. And then I'm kind of brought back to zero, right? It's like, there's no yeah. more, she's not going to hold that against me tomorrow. When it works well, that's the idea. It's like, really, yeah. I really realized what I did wrong. And then we get to a place where we're healthy about the situation. We're both mentally healthy. We have no resentments because we went through it. We, we, we really did it. But one point I brought up, I, I think I did in my testimony is that the, the Senate and the House have, both did formally apologize for slavery and Jim Crow in 2008 and 2009, kind of uh, sort of under the radar, but, you know, at the time there was a black president, you might think that this was the perfect moment, in a sense, to kind of close the door, not close the door on history in the sense of ignoring it, but in the sense of our emotional relationship to it. Um, right. but, it but it didn't happen, and it, it's not clear to me that the people demanding an apology are playing by the rules of apologies, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it also in this case, who is apologizing? So if you're talking mm-hmm. about reparations, if you're talking about money that has to come out of the pockets of every non-African American American, you know, that is a material demand that is being made on people who were not alive during slavery or, or even Jim Crow. And many of whom don't feel at all personally culpable for what happened in the past. And, and, the, and the question is, why should they? It's hard to know what it means to own the past as the past recedes, right? Insofar as there's an economic argument, if you can say, well, listen, you are a beneficiary of whatever. The, the, you know, this corporation is a corporation that used slave labor. This corporation is now worth billions of dollars. And we can point to the people whose lives have been made better on the basis of all this wealth. That's a material debt that you know. Whether or not anyone alive today would have sanctioned the use of slave labor, presumably not. You still benefited from it, and there's a a, uh, a transfer of wealth that makes moral sense here. But I mean, what someone like Coates seems to want is a vivid, uh, you know, epiphany on the part of every living white American that. They are culpable, you know we are culpable for a persistent level of racism that is totally intolerable and that explains all of the inequality and is of a piece with the darkest part of our history, and that no uh, on some level no gains have been made and to and to cite any specific obvious gains i mean to say something to be a white person and say, "Well, listen, we had a two term black president just had just what what are you what's going to count as?" Mm-hmm overcoming racism. You know, I voted for Obama twice. I uh, gave money to his campaign. I was all in on, you know, the the prospect of having a first black president and then I wanted him reelected, right? Mm -hmm. So is that white guy really culpable for the primal sin Of racism that Coates wants to redress. It's a hard case to make, but this is where all the bad faith comes in. Because it's a hard case to to, to make, it gets made dishonestly.
0: Yeah. There's another part to the, and we'll get off this soon, but the last part that I hear often from advocates of reparations is the idea that we have yet to acknowledge our history. That part of what is meant, if not most of what is meant by reparations, is a serious... Interrogation of our past as a country. The idea being that what most white people think happened is we fought a civil war, and ever since 1865, black people were roughly treated equally. And uh, what we need to do is really correct our history and knock over all, all of the resistance that white people allegedly feel to honestly acknowledging that slavery and Jim Crow happened and that many of the specific policies constituted like an extraction of wealth. And when I hear that argument, what I think to myself is, in the ten thousand year history of slavery, you know, slavery is as old as civilization, has been practiced right. in nearly, nearly every civilization, on almost every continent, every, on every inhabited continent. In fact, what I think to myself is, I don't think there's a single example of slavery that has been more studied than American slavery between the seventeenth century and nineteenth century, and what that suggests to me is that our our failure to get past race, which is a goal that not everyone shares, and, and we can talk about that, it's not going to be helped by further study of the past. And as much as I like history personally, and I find history to be fascinating, this idea that we need to delve deeper into the past as a primary means of sort of reconciling ourselves as Americans
1: mm. doesn't hold water for me yeah well it, it there's no end in sight if you go down that path i i would i would agree with that it's um, again if if you have a an identifiable injury that is easily bounded right where you can say like well, you know this is your your parents did this to my parents and here are the effects right like we well, you you dumped toxins on our land and it's going to cost a million dollars to clean it up right those are debts that people, and even previous generations, can incur to to others. And so I wouldn't want to close the door to reparations on the basis of past uh, you know, grievances that were formed in the past, just uh, across the board. But again, with something this big, and this complex, and this old, right, it's it's hard to see how it could ever really make moral or, or practical sense. Mm-hmm. That you, and, and then you're then you're still you'll be left with the present, right? You're left with persistent inequality of various types in the present, which, you know, as you point out in, in your writing, you know, and uh, I believe you mentioned here briefly, uh, there are all kinds of inequalities that we never think to uh, try to remedy, right? I mean, if you go looking for group differences, if you look, if you look at how. Polish-Americans compared to French-Americans in their, you know, economic well-being, right? You're going to find a difference, Mm -hmm. right? I don't remember who's on top there, but any group that finds itself below uh, a significant number of other groups could say, listen, there's got to be something fairly sinister that explains this, because Mm -hmm. I wake up every day, you know, trying to gather as much wealth as possible. And... You know, as a French-American, you know, it galls me that I've got the, the Indians and the Nigerians and the, and the Polish above me, right? Mm. No one would take that seriously, right? I mean, I presume no one would take that seriously. And we want to get to a place where it makes no more sense to say that of any other group, mm. right? So the question is how to get there.
0: I was going to bring this up uh, later, but let's do it now. So I think uh, I, I coined this term, I think, in my mind at least, racial gapology which is just mm-hmm. the study of right. racial gaps. And on the left, this takes the form of studying wealth gaps between blacks and whites, et cetera. Um, on, on the right, uh, this sometimes takes the form of studying IQ gaps between races, for example. And my sense is that all of that research, the whole category of taking one group to another, comparing some outcome, is something
1: we should become less interested in. Well, the thing is, the, the crucial thing, and this is this is what was so frustrating When I touch this topic Mm -hmm. uh, on my podcast, you are guaranteed to find these differences. Like, there's just no way it would be an absolute miracle if you could segment the human population based on identifiable groups, you know, that differ with respect to the the, you know, genealogy and therefore the the genetic. Uh, character of their ancestors. I mean, you 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 literally have human populations that lived apart significantly for thousands and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So they're going to differ genetically. And then you have the differences of culture layered on top of that, Mm -hmm. right? So you have different groups. Take, you know, to to be non-inflammatory, take the Norwegians and the the Japanese, right? Or the Norwegians and the the Italians, right? You can look at people and tell that they, you know, didn't come from Norway or didn't come from Japan, right? Mm -hmm. These people are different. And they have different cultures, they have different languages. It would be an absolute miracle if everything we cared about were at the same mean level in those groups. Yeah. Right. So we know we're gonna find difference. And and so to make to, to say that the mere discovery of, of difference is a sign of, of ethical pathology or, or or that it need be politically catastrophic or problematic. Mm-hmm. I mean that's just that's just sets you up for an endless Round of conflict. I mean, there's just there is we will never uh, get beyond this. So the question is, what what is a status quo that is that is actually okay, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 how do we actually identify real problems?
0: Yeah. So I feel like there. I, I agree. I agree with that completely. And I've even seen data showing IQ differences between different white ethnic groups. You know, if you you they did tests in the military and you found huge gaps sometimes between mm-hmm. Irish and Poles and whatnot. And um, you know none of this stuff is intrinsically interesting to me. I I don't think it is to you either. I mean the whole the, what was interesting about that whole debacle was I don't know that you even mentioned IQ and raised for fifteen years in your career, right? And then no, no, yeah, some people yeah. were painting you as quote unquote obsessed with the topic, and so I, I think there I agree with you that these these data at the moment are very inflammatory. At least some of them are, and there are two approaches to that 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 you might want to take to that you might say well we have to persuade people to understand that these differences will exist so that if they see them they you know they won't have they they won't have this aggressive emotional reaction i agree with that perspective but at the same time i think i think we should also persuade people and journalists and people who have platforms to talk less about racial differences and that it goes for IQ and it goes for wealth. I'm talking about scholars right. on both sides of the political spectrum here because, as you noted, there, there's a 21 cent on, on the dollar household income gap between white Americans of Russian descent and white Americans of French descent. If that were publicized in the New York Times, if we talked about that constantly, it could be possible that people that strongly identify with those ethnic roots, the French might think, well, what the hell is going on here? Like now I feel... I'm implicated. I feel the Russians are implicated. I'm going to try to find the source of of this disparity and you have all of the social fabric tears in the social fabric that are happening between blacks and whites now happening you know between
1: french and russians and that seems to me like only downside, right? And no one's looking for quotas. I mean so so the, the context in which we're having this conversation is one where people are people on the left are imagining that unless you have equal representation of, of identifiable minority groups in every field, you know, in software engineering, at Google, in, you know, cardiology and medical schools, unless you have, you know, 13% African-Americans there and 50, 50, uh, you know, male, female. Uh, and the pie chart has to look the same no matter where you do know, no matter what sort of pie you're you're baking, you know, but we're not looking to do that with any of these other identifiable groups. You know, nobody is saying, "Listen, I, I think there's not enough French Americans mm-hmm. at Google."
0: Or d- right? d- d- I think four of the last five Oscar-winning directors have been Mexican, which is great. Like when I hear that fact, right. I, I don't really right. have any emotional affect about it other than like, "Oh, that's that's interesting." You know, there's there's something you know culturally that 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 culture is producing a lot of great movie directors. And you right. know, if if you're gonna look, at, so like you know i'm a musician if i look at who has had the a huge impact on world music completely out of proportion you're going to be talking about black people in america like i've met people right. from eastern europe who heard tupac for the first time and it just touched them completely right like something about hip hop and the that visceral art form just completely transcended borders and is you know became popular in a way that many other genres of music just haven't right so that's a disparity of a kind and right. you know there 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 are infinitely many of these
1: and you know the, the the problem there is that if you were going to try to understand that i mean that that, that has some reason for being right mm-hmm. i mean obviously black culture has made a a disproportionate contribution to to music mm-hmm. right in the us and and therefore worldwide uh, so how do you explain that? Well, I think the temptation on the left would be to just say that on some level, it's a consequence of racism, or you, you, or you would have to be racist to be interested in why that would be the case, right? Or it's it's synonymous with other opportunities having been closed to hmm. African Americans. And there may be some truth to that, and there may be some truth to that in with respect to any minority group that has a disproportionate level of success in one area. But I'm, I'm I'm struck by your comment that many people don't think we w- should want to get to a post-racial society mm-hmm. because that seems to me to be the only uh, firm ground here that yeah. we I mean, the, the only the only harbor we're going to find ethically and politically is to eventually get to a place where the color of a person's skin is deeply uninteresting i mean no more interesting than the color of their hair Mm. right so like it's just no one's saying well listen i I don't i don't think there are enough blonde people at google right or working in in uh stem fields now it's just no one would think that to ask the question and if you it just it actually could be true that if you if you um compared the proportion of blonde people or redheaded people it'd be easier to do in society with their representation in any specific field you 'd find some anomaly you 'd find some, you'd find over and under representation and presumably you could you could tell some victimhood narrative around that um, mm-hmm. or some um, something which would seem politically problematic, just as no one would i would presume no one would be tempted to do that today right mm-hmm. it would it would have to seem just as fatuous. I mean, if we, if we actually arrive at the future I think we, we want to live in, it will seem just as fatuous to do that with respect to skin color or the, the, the ancestry of one's parents or anything else.
0: Yeah. So I want to come back to the post-racial point in a moment, but uh, very briefly, I think people tell very convenient post hoc stories about why black people are so successful at music, for example. It's not that the music industry wasn't racist. The music industry was absolutely racist. The right. NBA was racist before Black people got to it. It was it, it was far more a story, in my opinion, of Black people not being denied on the basis of undeniable skill. If right. you're talking about musical achievement, there's right. like the racism could not. It was met with so much opposition in the form of talent that it became yeah. obvious to people. You know, it's a matter of human capital, rather. I think people tell, tell stories that are very convenient to preserve, have their cake and eat it, too, to celebrate black people where black people have achieved far more than almost any other ethnicity and preserve the narrative that racism is is you know, ever-present and or somehow racism is still the cause of both success and failure. I think that's... I don't read history in that way. But I want to come back to this point of post-racial or, or colorblind. Because these two words, it seems to me, right now, are they're under attack. They've been under attack for, for decades. They um, they really need a kind of PR campaign. It seems to me because mm. they have a terrible image right now. Like you know, Bernie Sanders a few months ago said something like, you know, at this point we should be looking at a politician's policies and uh, you know skills rather than their skin color. Which to me, if you if you disagree with that statement, I you know I almost um, we we I almost don't even know what to think of yeah you know you yeah. like but but fifty years ago he would have been lauded as progressive because he was essentially quoting Martin Luther King right. What happened in twenty nineteen is that he was mocked the next night by Stephen Colbert right, hardly like a pink hair right. SJW type that. right like. Yeah. He was mocked for being an old white guy expressing this colorblind colorblind ethic, and I think that that, the fact that that's the point we've come to—that to say something like "I try to treat people, you know, not on the basis of skin, but on the content of character"—immediately marks you as naive. It's like you don't get it. That that is crazy to me because most of the arguments against colorblindness are either complete caricatures or straw men or just non sequiturs so like there's the notion that colorblindness is a way of ignoring racial injustice for example this is something that gets said something like i am black i will be treated as if i'm black i will be treated in a different way therefore you can't ask me to be colorblind you can't ask me to view my race as a trivial part of my identity because other people won't the thing is that 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 just is a non sequitur. Like we know there are so many ways in which you are treated differently based on your appearance, right? Like you right. you will treat tall people as more competent than short people. You know, there are yeah. a well, million.
1: That's actually a great example. It never occurs to me to say this, but you know, being short is. A serious disadvantage. I mean, especially if you're a, a man, right? So, like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like what? What is, you know, if, if you're? I don't know where where the line is. It's but, great. You know, it's great on an airplane in coach, yeah, but yeah, yeah. on a no, date, yeah, they, on a first date, not it's many. not. I mean, if you if you actually just pull women on their bias, you know, the variables that that concern them. Um, I mean, people have done these experiments where it's just like how much more money you need to earn to compensate for each inch below whatever it is. You know, five six. It's crazy, you know, and it, right. and it, so that— But it that doesn't follow. A, it doesn't follow that you should or, or that
0: I should, as a short person, view my shortness as an important part of my identity. It just doesn't
1: follow. No, no, no. I mean, you, you just—there's no group of people telling you every day that this has to be core to how you view every moment of dissatisfaction in your life, right? Mm-hmm. So everything that goes wrong between you and another person is very likely the result of their bias against your height. Right in the future, you could you could definitely there's no question you could tune that that framework up so that mm-hmm. it was, would always be there. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and you I'm sure there are be...
0: some the people in the incel community probably that that do that.
1: yeah, but there, but there's I, no I or you know or or being being ugly, right? Yeah. I mean, like it's you know it's just if you have you know radically asymmetrical you know facial features, right. There is no culture, there's no society, there's no group of people who think that's uh, an ideal of beauty, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just not. So you're, you're unlucky. I mean, be, being beautiful is, is an advantage. There's just no question. And right. it is a, tra- a transcultural advantage.
0: Right? And it, there, it, it there's, just there's, doesn't follow from how people see you that you have to see yourself that way. That's just, but yeah, that, right. that and, is one of the most common attacks on, on colorblindness.
1: And, and there's no group, that is militating that you, you need to, to frame everything, but with respect to this variable, Mm -hmm. right? So, Mm -hmm. and there could be, I mean, you Mm -hmm. could easily imagine people getting together saying, listen, this is, this has been intolerable. This has been this, I've been a victim of this my whole life. And, uh, there are millions of people like me and we need, you know, we need to deal with this. Right. So there's enough human difference that, that you can't compensate for that is consequential. And, the truth is, any given individual is just whoever they are, right? They ha- You have whatever luck you have, right? And it's true that certain things set you up to succeed more or less effortlessly, and certain and other things will require you to work with what is inarguably a disadvantage, given the society you're in. And it's not to say that there aren't norms in a society that we should want to change. I mean, yeah, clearly there are norms we, wa- we want to change, or... Um, you know attitudes that we want to push back against, but the reality is, is that even if we complete just scrubbed our politics and our institutions and our social norms of anything that looked like a, a kind of indefensible bias, you would still have bias, mm. right? You would still have people based on their evolved preferences and their cultural preferences that you can't help but form, who are more attracted to some. People than other people, right And so, then the, then so that, that's already an inequality that's just you could, com, you could complain about. You'll, you would still have you'll have a bell curve of talents over any conceivable talent, right? whether you can quantify it or not, you're just gonna, you'll recognize that some people are better at, at certain things than others. Again, I was speaking about individuals. And if you have one group that has a, a mean sense of humor on some sense of humor scale we could come up with of seven, and you have another group that has a mean sense of humor of four, and you happen to be in the group that that gets a mean of seven. That doesn't mean that you're funny, right? I mean, you are as funny as you are, mm-hmm. right? And and you ne- you don't you never derive a real group benefit or or disadvantage, It's provided. You're, we live in a society where you know there's enough equality of opportunity where you can you can move to your strengths and you can you can try to you know correct your weaknesses. You know, so mm-hmm. we so obviously we want. The, the opportunities for education and medical care and, e- and every good thing that's supportive of people from the moment they leave the womb, we want this spread around as much as, as we can, and we want to correct for inequalities there. But the idea that a sane politics depends on us getting some— it's hard to imagine what an equality of outcome would even mean. Mm. You know, there's just too many variables mm. to consider. But mm. getting to some equality of outcome everywhere, everywhere you look, it just could never happen. Mm-hmm.
0: Right? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And um, yeah, I, I want to come back to colorblindness, though, uh, you know, and look at some of the other arguments that are leveled against it. I think one is just a straw man, which is you know, when someone says, quote, I don't see color. Right. Usually, if they're a psychologically normal person, they don't literally mean that they're colorblind, as in they can't distinguish. What they mean is, I aspire to be the type of person who treats people equally, regardless of how they look, right? And yet, I think it it was Howard Schultz who said, I don't see color, and was ridiculed for this, perhaps rightly, because that is a bizarre way of phrasing it. Taken literally, you know, it can't be true. But Shouldn't we give him the the benefit of the doubt in the sense that he you know he's a CEO of Starbucks he probably he he probably doesn't mean he does not literally see color but really any expression that gestures in that direction
1: now well what you want to get to and and many people can honestly confess is is a an experience where it has it's not salient in any in any ethically or politically interesting way, right? I mean, it's like you don't... Again, I mean, hair color is is a great example. Like, I I see hair color, right? Obviously, you know, it's like if you ask me what color someone's hair is, I can tell you. But I'm never going through life thinking, oh, well, she's blonde, or she's she's brunette. That's got to sort of... I got to take that into account, Mm -hmm. you know, in the way I feel about this person. It has zero charge ever, right? And wouldn't that be the world we want to live in, right? I, I, can't, I, just can't, I don't understand someone who thinks we wouldn't want to live in that world. What they say is, they never
0: say straight up, I wouldn't want to live in that world. What they say is, that is naive. That is a way of ignoring racial injustice. Don't you realize that, to, to extend the analogy, the hair color you're born with determines your place in society. You will be treated as a blonde or brunette. Therefore, it does matter, that's what they say, right? Which, uh, it, again, it just strikes me as a non sequitur, right? The, racism is precisely a failure of colorblindness. It is a lack of colorblindness, right? It, it, it's right. not... Colorblindness is the antidote to racism. And it, as a matter of intellectual history, the people who promoted the colorblind ideas, we are talking A. Philip Randolph, you know, the, uh, the original leader of the March, March on Washington movement in the 1940s, mm. Bayard Rustin, person who organized the 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 march on the famous march on washington in 63 martin luther king right the notion of reverse racism which is you know if i were to say something against you as a white guy you know sam's a white guy he just doesn't get it he's a straight white male right the notion that i am being racist to you is actually ridiculed on the left right now because at least certainly in academic circles it's seen as you know, prejudice plus power, and you have power as a white guy, therefore, I, I, and I don't have power, so I can't really be racist towards you. And people who cry reverse racism are, you know, it basically elicits an eye roll. These are just conservative trolls. They don't really get it. They don't care about racism. Uh, they're just trolling, essentially. If you go back and read A. Philip Randolph, the, the founder of the original March on Washington movement, he literally used the phrase racism in, in reverse as something to warn against black people participating in it, right? This is not an idea that came out of 4chan. That's kind of how it's portrayed right now. But it's just not true as a matter of intellectual history. And I think that people try to retell history in a way or or conveniently ignore certain things so as to make their case seem
1: more plausible today. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I I think this is another example where history is not helpful. I mean, I, the the etymology of a phrase or the history of its usage shouldn't constrain us in the present, right? I mean, so like, take, take the, the shibboleth on the left and in African-American circles that the most clueless thing you can say in response to a charge of racism is, wait a minute, some of my best friends are black. Like, that is, that's not only not exculpatory, that is just, you are... You have doubly condemned yourself to even think. That should get you off the hot seat, right? I think that's total bullshit. Now, there may be a historical reason why this came to be. I'm not, I'm not actually up on the history. It could have been that the first usage of some of my best friends are black could have been, you know, literally out of the mouth of an obvious racist who was just, you know, making a joke. You know, I don't, I don't actually know where the phrase was first spoken. Perhaps you do, but in the present. When you actually look at what it would what is entailed in overcoming racism, and you admit that you're in the presence of someone for whom it's true to say that some of his best friends are black, if that doesn't mark a, st- a stage of progress and probably final progress on the path out of a, having a racist problem, what I mean by the word best friend, mm-hmm. you know, or or what what is possible to mean by best friend. Uh, and what is everything that's entailed in that? I mean, it's not to say that there couldn't be some residue of ra- racial bias or or charge to race in general, given the, the level the level of of its expression in our society. But I mean, this even happens with, with with people who are you know have interracial marriages, right? They still like even even that is insufficient to to get out from under the shadow. I don't know what world you think we're going to get to if if that's not the important increment of progress. And the thing is, it's
0: not even sufficient sometimes within the relationships themselves. Because, I mean, I I know two or three examples of kids, friends of mine, who go to Columbia or Barnard and are themselves a part of a black white interracial couple that have been dating for years. And, you know, I I think it's a testament to the power of ideas that multiple, I have multiple different stories, which I, I won't tell in too much detail of the black half of that partnership accusing the white half of racism, right? right? The same person that they sleep in the same bed as every night, knows everything about their history, is their, is their closest partner in life. But also, just, just being black at Columbia and Barnard in this environment, you are, not inevitably, as I am proof of, but the, the tug of social justice thinking is so strong that Mm. I've seen the conflict even within relationships where like, you know, you're having a fight with your partner that is about a completely non-racial issue, just a typical relationship fight. And then because you're black and it's 2019 and you exist in this very niche subculture in which this sort of move is allowed you mm. accuse your partner of being clueless as a white person, not just being clueless as your partner, right? I've seen this yeah. happen over and over again. And, it you know, it, this stuff is invisible unless you're, you're friends with the people, but it's a testament to the the power of ideas that are academic to trickle down into
1: social relationships and whatnot. There's also the, the experience that that I've had with people who for whom the color of their skin is really not, is not very salient where you, you, you actually can become colorblind to a degree that, that, you know, does prop up Howard Schultz a little bit. Like, I, I mean, I'm, I was always struck when I hang out with Ion hersey Ali, right? She is black, but I mean, she's Somali, mm-hmm. but she's did not have any of the African American experience, right? I mean, she just came from Somalia to Europe and now she's in America, but mm-hmm. you know, it's just like She's from another planet when you're talking about these issues, and I mean I, this is a conversation I haven't had with her. I'm sure she has some of the the black experience, whatever that is, even though it's completely unsupported on her own side. You know, just as she moves through life. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it is very easy to forget the color of her skin around her because she seems to have forgotten the Mm -hmm. color of her skin. I mean, so there's a mm post-racial experience you have with her, Mm -hmm. which, which, um, you know, represents a a fairly bright line to me of, of just what, what is possible and, and and why that couldn't be possible by the millions. I, you know, I, I don't know.
0: I've seen that attitude replicated with many black immigrant friends of mine. Uh, I have two pretty close friends, uh, from Jamaica. Very very dark skinned. Right. Uh, one of them, Camille Foster, has a great podcast called The Fifth Column. Yeah, I highly that's recommend. Right. Um, he actually does not identify as black, and it's so right. interesting. Translating yeah, he must get
1: some pain over over He that, gets a lot of imagine. pain. I mean, he articulates,
0: yeah. he defends that position as well as it could possibly be defended, and he is one of the sanest people that I know. So you know, right. people you know coming from an Amer a context. Uh, like a you know descended from slavery context, the context I learned about the African American sp- experience was more reminiscent of the way Black Americans tend to, rather than Black immigrants. The first time I heard that, I thought, Oh God, he just he just doesn't get it. Here. He doesn't get what it is here, what race is here. And then I have an I had another Jamaican friend, Desiree Campbell, who does great YouTube videos, who essentially had the same exact perspective. And I'm thinking there is something in the in the water here, the culture, how we talk about race. That is pathological, and we don't even realize how how pathological it is until we see what's possible uh, from an outside perspective. I have
1: the analogous experience uh, with Judaism, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's it's a slightly different thing, but the um, because it's not quite as visible. Although I'm always amazed that I can be vis- visibly uh, picked out as Jewish. Uh, like I, I have, I've had this experience several times where. Um, occasionally, Orthodox Jews will you know, show up in a Starbucks, whatever, to just you know find a convert. And I mean, literally, they'll pick me out of you know a crowd of you know it's like you know, thirty white people. The guy will just walk make a beeline to my table, right? So, so uh, it is visible in some sense. But um, you know, I feel totally unimplicated in in anti I mean, Anti semitism is a thing, right? It's clearly a, a problem of some order. Um, I have been the target of it at least online. I've noticed, you know, pe- people attacking me as a Jew. It's completely meaningless to me, right? Like, so, but there's no question that I could make it meaningful. Like, if I if I was identified as a Jew, right? Um, and it's not that I'm aloof to the the history of anti-Semitism. I, you know, I've spent a lot of time studying the Holocaust, and I, you know, I, I'm totally aware that. You know this could become a significant problem again and you know is is a problem in in europe to a significant degree even now but it's just personally the difference between feeling personally implicated in this and not is Mm. is enormous and you know it's just am i i'm in a very privileged position where i don't have to you know it's like i'm not being denied jobs because i'm jewish i mean i'm not there's not it's, it's not that level of a problem but yeah, on some level, it's an accident of culture that I'm not, folk, I'm not seeing more things through that lens. And you know, so what we want are we want to engineer some happy accidents of culture that serve to break the spell. And the the one thing I don't see, in fact, the one thing I'm fairly certain can't be true, is that just there's just no way that caring more and more about race and racial difference, making it more and more salient, in the way that that someone like. Ta-Nehisi Coates does. Uh, there's no way that is the optimal strategy to actually getting past it. Uh, it seems like absolutely the wrong algorithm to be running.
0: Yeah, I think you and I are similar in that you know, I've experienced racism. I have stories, so to speak, not the worst stories by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't see my identity as deeply implicated in, in when, you know, when I think of anti-black racism. When I'm trying to assess the amount of racism in America, I try to think as an ob- objective person, not "quote unquote" as a black man. Despite the fact that I have some stories I could I could tell, you know, it's interesting. I think you'll appreciate this. Uh, so you and I both meditate, and uh, I found out through your blog actually about the Insight Meditation Society, where mm. I've been on three, yep. three retreats, okay. and I highly recommend it. I, I mindfulness has been a huge tool for me in my life. Uh, especially in the context of being publicly shamed, which perhaps we can touch yeah. on briefly. Yeah, yeah. But I think I, I went on a retreat maybe two years ago, and I think I sent you an email talking about the way in which social justice politics was beginning to infiltrate yeah. in the retreat. So they have this welcome yeah. packet, and right at the beginning of the welcome packet, before the information about where the defibrillator was, was a list of all the ways in which white people are privileged, right? And I just right. saw this. Yeah. And blows my mind. I'm I'm thinking like, I'm about to not speak for a week for the first time in my life and be kind of completely You're already
1: guilty of white privilege.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Not only do I have the immense privilege of doing this, but it is the least of my concerns that I'm going to experience racism here at a Buddhist meditation retreat,
1: right? Given the explicit goal of meditation is to overcome concepts of all kinds and especially self-identity. And the very notion of the self right right the idea that you're going to ramify this superficial level of difference in the information packet yeah. mean, It's just it, it was my, I, so, yeah I it, I hit Joseph pretty hard when, once I received that email I, he got he got an earful I'm afraid
0: I'm afraid you're gonna have a reason to hit him a little bit harder because it's gotten worse I'm happy to. Oh, yeah. I, I went on a retreat in March, and it was great. Uh-huh. I, you know, I, I, I just want to be very clear here. I love Insight Meditation Society. It yeah. is no, one of the most— the best place to practice. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Now they have—wait for it—people uh-huh. of color sits. One sit a day that is exclusively for people of color. Oh, my God. So on, so, so
1: on a retreat, white people are told they shouldn't come to that sitting? So, yeah. On. So we
0: have—there's one sit in the evening— where if I want to, as a black man, I can go to a separate room that is reserved for people of color, no white people allowed, and rather than do the group sit with everyone in the meditation hall, just right. do it with, like, me, one Chinese woman, and an Indian guy. And th- the idea being, because there's no white people, that I will because... I- I'll have a better practice, <laughs> right? There's oh, so many layers, layers of irony to that. Like, one is, what do I really have in common with this one Chinese woman? Do I have more in common with her based on being a quote POC, this kind of weird umbrella category? And secondly, we're all in here studying a philosophy invented by an Indian guy, and uh, you know if we't if we can't achieve the colorblind ideal here yeah. at this like extremely oh, hippie, God. open-minded, like we, we have completely lost. That is the feeling I came away with. And I actually did not go to go to the sit. Because I felt I would be going in bad faith, and I was in such a unironic non writerly space, I was right. just trying to so, so basically it it offered many many opportunities for observing my own frustration and letting it pass yeah. through me
1: but yeah so no, I, I recall they would they were having people of color retreats, right, which i I could mm-hmm. sort of understand the justification for, but yeah, yeah the idea that you would have. A, a special sitting within a, a a retreat that's open to the general public mm-hmm. i mean they're like women's retreats too right which you which i can i can also understand the rationale for but yeah and you know teenager retreats but the idea that you would need a room where you know the, you know white people are not allowed in order to make everyone else feel comfortable enough in their practice that is uh uh well, yeah joseph will hear from me on that topic he doesn't have the power to change this. Yeah. I mean, it's not, yeah. it's not North Korea over there. He's, um, he's dealing with a board right, right, uh, that right. is, I'm sure, very woke. Yeah. So yeah, but I will, I will complain nonetheless. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, Before, before uh, I let you go. As a, uh, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a sign of my white privilege, that's the worst thing I've heard all day.
0: Believe me, uh, it, do, it does not make you as mad as it made me on retreat. I was, yeah. I was fuming, but uh, I was in the perfect position to deal with my anger. Constructively right. by right. breathing, focusing on the breath. Before I let you go, I want to talk briefly about public shaming. Uh-huh. This is a, a topic that ha, that I've kind of been forced to think a lot about by being a part of a public shaming. You're, you've, I think, weathered many public shamings. I feel you're kind of a veteran of the territory. Mm-hmm. And you've also yeah. thought a lot about it in addition to having experienced it firsthand. and I guess I want to ask, what have you learned firsthand from dealing with the public shaming from a psychological point of view and from a societal point of view? What do you think we can do to push back against the just the constant cycle of public shamings that are leaving careers destroyed, Mm -hmm. families destroyed? Uh, You know, we, we rarely see what happens uh, on the underbelly of a public shaming, but just, you know, very, very briefly, like, I'm having to have conversations with, with my sisters and father about security, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. that is something that you know, I was, I, I literally, I broke into tears the other day just thinking about that because, you know, the, these are decisions I've made that are now implicating my family members because people with platforms have named them. And, you know, that, that is, and I'm frankly one of the milder cases of public shaming right there are there are people who right. who have gotten it far worse so uh so I put that to you
1: yeah well there there are many pieces to it um i mean what so the security piece is is separable because it's not necessarily the result of public shaming, mm. although that could be you know part of it i mm. mean just as you're as you become more visible, you'll attract all kinds of. Unwanted attention, and that just that comes with the territory. I mean, and there are intelligent moves you can make to to mitigate that. But you know, I mean, some of the more troubling attention you could get might not be ideological at all. It just might be you know from crazy people, right? Someone who's infatuated with you, or somebody who thinks you are sending the messages, or whatever. And so, and that's just you know every person who has a significant public profile has some level of that going on. And that's, you know, that's just a, it can be a problem, but it's it's definitely separable from the kind of mob, like, you know, scapegoating and, and shaming we're seeing, especially on social media. You know, I, I've stepped I've stepped back from I never used Facebook or really any other platform ap- apart from just kind of as, as a marketing tool. You know, I just I'll post if I you know, I released an episode of my podcast today, we posted it. I assume we posted it on Facebook, but you know I never see what's happening on Facebook. But I actually use Twitter, and I and I used to kind of get into the weeds with you know what was coming back at me, and I would certainly notice when somebody with a blue check mark would. Dishonestly, you know, circulate something that was designed to to smear me, or and I've pulled back like ninety eight percent from Twitter at this point. I mean, occasionally I, I, I'm using it more and more the way I've always used Facebook. I mean, it's just I push something out there. Occasionally, I'll I may mean, look at my feed, I look at the people who I'm following just to see you know what articles they're recommending, and you know it, it does kind of curate my my news diet to some degree, but I see much less of what's coming back at me. I mean, you know, like, you know, I've really cut it by a factor of properly almost 100. So, you know, on some level, I could be getting publicly shamed and not even know about it at this point. And I've, you know, very consciously built my platform now where I'm as immune as a person can be, I think, to the consequences of anything getting any significant momentum out there. So, you know, if I had a job at CNN or if I had a job at a university, if I was a, you know, a research scientist at a a university and I was, you know, we just had this conversation about race and I, you know, just went on record saying that, you know, the defense, some of my, my best friends are black. That should, that should be a good defense. Right. Who knows what's going to happen with that. Right. Someone's going to someone, someone will re-edit this podcast to make it even sound worse. Mm. Right. I mean, they, they do that with my podcast. I'm actually, you know, for the most part, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, you know who knows how bad it could get. I mean, we're now getting into the area of deep fakes, where you know you're you're going to have a video of you saying things you absolutely never said, and you know a million people could believe it. But I'm at a point now where I basically feel beyond caring about any of that stuff, and so I would re- I'd recommend you doing whatever you need to do to get to that place because right. psychologically, it's a much happier place to be. Now, there's a spot on the on this map of immunity to this kind of thing that I, I think you don't want to occupy which is a kind of I mean, it's possible to build your own echo chamber such that you're only hearing from your fans and you're you're getting captured by your fans right so you're, you 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 become i mean there are people who i see this happen to I um, mean, these are like someone like candace owens right I don't, I don't know candace for significant stretches of time she can seem totally reasonable and you catch her on some other topic like global warming, and she can seem you know quite deranged. Yeah. And uh, no doubt there's a lot she said that I'm unaware of. But she seems to me to be someone who is very effectively building a, an echo chamber for herself, where there's no feedback that's going to prove valid enough so that she's going to course correct on the basis of it, right? And there, it's almost like a it's a fairly Trumpian exercise where it's like, like once you've, there's a certain subset of fans that you care about and it's, and those are the only ones you care about. You're never going to hear when you're actually doing things that are in a larger context, obviously idiotic or wrong or unethical or, so I'm very conscious in how I relate to my own audience. I mean, now speaking specifically about like my podcast audience of having kind of Trained my audience to care about my being coherent and ethical and honest, and my being disposed to reconcile apparent contradictions in things I've said or or done, if that ever happens. So I I, fo- I feel like I have an audience that is not that is actually very quick to push back against me. I, like I, I really don't have an echo chamber of an audience, you know, and I and I consciously go against my audience. Mm when I feel like there's any significant subset of them that are is wrong on a topic. Like when I discovered some percentage of my audience supported Trump, you know, that didn't cause me to shut up about Trump. That caused me to, you know, go harder against, against him. And, uh, so I, so I, so I think the thing you don't want to do is, is decide, all right, I'm just going to listen to feedback I like, mm-hmm. right? You can't get into that spot. And mm-hmm. it's, it's easy to do that in, in this kind of forum because you'll yeah. just select for it, especially if you become, and the other thing I, I certainly wouldn't want to see happen to you is, you know, you shouldn't be someone who just focuses on, you know, this particular culture war issue. I mean, you have, you have such a, a wide range of interests and, and such an obvious skill set that, you know. If any of this matters, you're going to get to a place where you've said everything you have to say about race, and you know you're just not going to there's other things to talk about, right? Mm-hmm. so it's going to it's going to come up not once a week or once an episode; it's going to come up once a year, mm-hmm. right, or once every five years. Uh, it's sort of like it's sort of what's happened to me on the topic of really atheism. You know, just the, the conflict between religion and science. I mean, I, you know, at a certain point that was my thing, and then it was kind of a side, you know, light on, you know, focusing uniquely on Islam. Right, and I still have those things to say. For the most part, my my opinions haven't changed. The world hasn't fundamentally changed, but I have said more or less everything I can think to say on those Mm -hmm. topics, and they're not intrinsically interesting to me. And so I've just moved on. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I won't say, you know, if you know, if there's a terrorist attack in in you know a major capital, uh, and it's and it's jihadists, and nobody's making sense, and I have a platform, I might you know revisit the issue. But again, that'll be just a, a specific moment of me. Saying the thing I've said a thousand times, and then moving on, and and you know I I would I would assume that's going to happen for you, you know maybe sooner than you think on this topic, and then I think you just want to so much of what comes back at you is is so obviously in bad faith that even to interact with it is demeaning, right? I mean like you just you essentially have to. Uh, I mean this is this is a lesson I've been very slow to learn. I mean for, for in in the beginning I felt like I had to push back on this stuff, especially if it's coming from some prominent person. But if it's in sufficiently bad faith, there's just no, in my world, you know, the, the Glenn Greenwalds and the Reyes Aslans of the world, you, you just can't, to push back. Yeah, it, it, there, there's something intrinsically demeaning about it. And there's just no, there is no, there's no r- real outcome there. I mean, what you'll begin to find is the people who followed your argument in the first place are with you and they see you as, uh, at minimum, boring them mm. by, by, by feeling like you need to put out this fire um, or, or getting your hands dirty unnecessarily. And then the people who are incapable of following your argument or are so wedded to their their ideology that they simply won't, you're not going to win them over. Yeah, it's a happy day when you actually, it just never occurs to you to see what's coming back at you on social media.
0: Yeah, I feel like I've, in the in the wake of my testimony before Congress— I've had something of a transformation in how I'm approaching this. So I don't know. I, I think I, I have a similar disposition to you in the sense that I'm very concerned with the feedback I get because I'm afraid I got something wrong and I get things wrong sometimes. And sometimes right. yeah. there's an excellent correction to one of my views that shows up in my Twitter notifications. So I felt that I have to look at it just yeah, yeah. in order to keep myself honest and a lot of my fans are i think similar to your fans even even if they generally agree with me will be quick to point out if i get something wrong and i really value that so i felt that i have to look at my notifications and then the other 90% of what i get is you know a lot of it is ad hominem and i think for a long time i i sort of tried to pretend that none of it got to me but mm-hmm. I think the truth is, all of it kind of gets to me. And, yeah. you know, one I, I just read this book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. Yeah, that's yeah, great. And one of his observations after looking at many different case studies is that oftentimes the, the the subject or object of a public shaming becomes numb to all these emotions, right? Like you choose or you you, you switch into a mode where you're just not feeling anything. And that really resonated with me because as I left Congress, I don't know if anyone got this on video, but it was me, my sister, my girlfriend, my friend, and there there were just a crowd of people yelling the word shame at us at point-blank range, mm. at the top of their voices, wow. and my sister was yelling back, and people asked me is, how... Is that I,
1: video everywhere? Is, is that video anywhere? Because I only saw what you were getting as you were... Testifying, and even that was fairly colorful.
0: Yeah, um, is 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 the rest? Somebody did take this video, and it was so deep in my Twitter mentions during when I was getting kind of shamed that I didn't, Mm. I didn't, I didn't think to like bookmark this to watch later. (laughs) Right, but it's somewhere deep in the internet. But people ask me, "What did you feel at that moment?" And the truth is, I felt nothing. I felt I was in complete kind of Zen warrior mode, like get out of this building and leave. I didn't feel f- yeah. fear or shame or any. it was just nothing. And I think a lot of my reaction to the public, to, to, to the public shaming has been of that character. And it's been at the same time as I've sort of started to allow myself to feel normal human emotions about being the object mm-hmm. of a public shaming campaign. I've in the past 10 days been off of Twitter almost completely. And right. Well, I go on once a day for maybe three minutes just to see if the algorithm yeah. has pushed yeah. up any great articles. And then um,
1: that's it. And yeah. yeah, that's kind of like me. Yeah. Well, and I understand, you know, there's definitely a time to pay attention to what's coming back at you just on the, on the off chance that some, you know, error is being found. And, mm-hmm. and uh, like, actually, this, this happened to me recently. I you probably followed the uh the Andy no uh you know Antifa uh drama where he was he was attacked by Antifa mm-hmm. and I said something on my podcast about it in, in the housekeeping and I mentioned you know uh, I mentioned this old man this other video of an old man getting hit with a crowbar and I had just seen video of just an old man getting hit with a crowbar by Antifa but it turns out there was vid- video of him previously you know with a telescopic b- baton Fighting Antifa. Yeah. And then, you know, finally, you know, he gets overwhelmed by by you know, crowbar wielding thugs. And so somewhat I just happened to look at, you know, I, I pushed this out. I, I just happened to look at my ad mentions and someone said you might want to revise this this bit about the old man because he's not as innocent as you made out. It doesn't mm. really change your argument. Mm-hmm. So but that was, I wouldn't have found that for myself, right? I just, I'm not scouring the internet for other videos of this incident that I already thought I saw, right? So that's very useful and perhaps inevitable, but you don't want to live in your, in your Twitter feed yeah. at all, because it, it is, I mean, the other thing is you can clean it up by you, you can decide to only hear from people who are following you mm-hmm. and have a confirmed email address and who, you know, don't have a Twitter egg bio photo. I mean, you, you, you can, you can, check a few boxes and that cleans it up immensely, mm-hmm. you know, but it is just, it's toxic to be thinking about what other people think of you mm-hmm. all the time. Right. So it's like, and so if you can just live your life so as to not be continually reminded of this, uh, you know, chatter about you, that's gotta be better unless oh, yeah. you, you know, unless there, there really is an opportunity to, to course correct because you've taken a position that was ill considered or, I mean, that's the other thing with, about, you know, you being publicly shamed if you haven't done something even remotely shameful in fact if your actual impulses are ethical and born of your concern for you know real problems in this world it's like there's no place for it to land you know it's like it's like for me in my criticism of islam me spelling out the linkage between specific doctrines and and you know jihadism and me worrying about this in the aftermath of a terrorist attack right when i have someone on twitter of you know even if they have you know 2 million followers call me a racist because i've said something about negative about islam in this context it's I mean, one is a non sequitur, so it doesn't land for that reason, because you know, Islam is not a race. But two, you know, I know internally that my concern about Islam has absolutely nothing to do with race, right? I mean, it's because it has. You know, I'm in total solidarity with the reformed Muslims and the and the ex-Muslims who share the same racial characteristics that most Muslims do the world over, if 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 you're going to generalize in that way. But it's, it's just race is orthogonal to the problem, right? Yeah. So what you're often met with in any bad faith criticism, you're, you're met with a very energetic, you know, kind of you know, laser beam intensity animus directed at you that is not actually directed at you, right? Yeah. It's like it's not you. It's not based on the actual content of your ideas, your actual motives, the, the real way you feel about people, the things you care about. So it's like they, they have some fictional version of you that they hate right? And that they're determined to keep in play, right? There's no, with these people, there's no amount of clarification that will get them to recognize, oh, actually, yeah, you. this was mistargeted, right? That's not actually what you're about or what you were thinking or why you were doing it. That never happens. So it it is a very different experience than actually doing something wrong, Mm. you know, that you internally feel is wrong uh, or for the wrong reason. And then having that same spotlight, shined on it and yeah. that's um i mean honestly that's an experience i've I, I haven't had you know so like i've had i guess we should and this is the first time i have even thought about this but we should probably differentiate public shaming that has no place to land because you know the 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 shamee recognizes that it's totally unwarranted and then public shaming that really does you know you you you, you did something wrong you mm-hmm. you did something that's either you know actually is humiliating or embarrassing or for which you feel like the need to apologize. And, you know, people hate you for it and they're not accepting your apology. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a very different world to be in.
0: I want to go back briefly to a point you made about the Andy No affair in Portland recently. I think you, you said something along the lines of, this is the kind of thing that probably could not have happened if not for Twitter. Right? Like the whole... Right. Like people wouldn't have known, yeah. yeah, People wouldn't not have known necessarily who Andy Ngo was. They wouldn't, you know, the the whole, the whole thing. And and one of the things that I'm also rethinking is my relationship to not just consuming Twitter, but to consuming daily news in general. There was this recent study that that Yasha Monk wrote about in the Atlantic, which showed that basically any level of news consumption correlates with your being. Too alarmed about the opposing party. If you watch more Mm -hmm. news, you're more likely to think that Republicans are far more radical than they are, and vice versa. And so so I read that. And then I also, you know, yesterday I saw Aziz Ansari's stand up, uh, his new Netflix special. I don't know if you've seen it. No, I haven't seen it yet. But he does one social experiment in the special where he essentially makes up a fake culture war controversy, right? He makes up Mm -hmm. a story about a pizza that had pepperoni in the shape of a swastika on it and you know half of people who saw the pizza thought it was a swastika the other half of people thought it just looked like a normal pizza pie and he asked people in the audience do you guys remember this story it was in the new york times and washington post Clap if you think it looked like a swastika some people clap. Clap if you think it looked like a normal pizza other people clapped. He even said, "Oh, you, you just clapped. You don't think it looked like a swastika, sir?" And he said, "Yeah, no, I rem- I remember that. You know, I don't think it- I think it's just, you know, a bunch of PC garbage, you know." And he yeah. he just and then he reveals that he completely made the story up. Right. And it it shocked me because you know I'm someone who consumes a lot of news, not because I love it intrinsically, but because I feel I should be informed. And I'm questioning right. the degree to which my being informed. I'm I'm questioning the consequences of news consumption. Essentially,
1: what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, I'm going through a similar reevaluation on my side too. Because I, I, I mean, one, there's just there's so much to keep up with, and if you're reading a lot of news. Every day it's, it's in zero sum contest with everything else you want to be reading, right' just know, you're no longer reading books. I was noticing that it was getting harder to read books same uh, yeah because I just re- was reading so many articles and you know I, I felt a personal and professional commitment to just at least surveying all the news that day like i would I would turn every page in the New York Times just to to make sure I had at least seen all the headlines I'm not doing that so much anymore because it's, it's a little bit like. We've sort of lost the weekly magazine as a as a framework through which to get news. But it used to be that you could read you know, Time magazine, magazine once a week and be fairly sure that if a story was was significant, it would survive a, a weekly news cycle. Right. And. I'm kind of resetting with that, you know, like it's like if this if this thing is going to is actually big, it's going to be around in a few days. People are still going to be talking about it in a few days. Unfortunately, that's not quite true with, with Trump because he's there's like there's like no atrocity large enough to, to survive a, a 48 hour news cycle because uh, he's going to do something else. But, yeah, it's I, I can see. I mean, that that's a surprising result that that Yasha tweeted about, but uh, it doesn't really surprise me. But, yeah, there's a linear relationship between. Being informed it, it, journalistically, i.e., reading the news and misconceiving the level of radicalization of the other party, mm-hmm. you know, it's depressing, but it doesn't surprise me.
0: Yeah. Well, on that depressing note, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much, Sam, for being oh, my first the news. guest yeah. here at uh, Conversations with Coleman. And uh, I hope to have well, you a pleasure. back.
1: Yeah. Let's... Well, I'll, I'll come back. We'll talk about the philosophy of mind or something that is oh, yeah. uh, truly beyond identity. Excellent.